0: You're listening to a bonus episode of FluxPod. It is, in fact, an episode of a different podcast, uh, which I was a guest on. This is an episode of Junk Filter, uh, a podcast by Jesse Hawken. And I was on to talk about Steely Dan. And, you know, it was kind of also in some ways an introduction to Steely Dan to get people Dan-pilled, as as we're saying. Um, And I'm putting this in the feed first so you can listen to Jesse's show. and You can hear me on Jesse's show. But also because uh, this, con- this, this, the next episode in this series, uh, Jesse will be on this show, and we will be continuing a conversation about Steely Dan, going a little deeper. So enjoy the show. Uh, go subscribe for Jesse's show called Junk Filter, and uh, come back here on Wednesday, and we will get we, we will further pill you if you are not already Danpilled.
1: Welcome to episode 24 of Junk Filter. My name is Jesse Hawken, and my guest for today is Matthew Perpetua. He's a Brooklyn based podcaster. He's been running Flux Blog for the last 19 years, and he has a new podcast called Flux Pod. And I've asked Matthew to come on the show today to talk about Steely Dan, a very divisive band. Matthew and I love them. Some of my listeners may not love them. I think of Steely Dan as a boomer band that Gen X had to learn to like, but the millennials and Gen Z were a little warmer towards, perhaps because of the way Steely Dan was sampled in hip-hop, perhaps because they were removed from the cultural battle that Steely Dan represented, especially towards Gen X, who liked punk and liked hardcore. And to people like people in my age group, Steely Dan were the enemy. And today's show, we're going to sort of explore the band, We're going to explore some of the dynamics of their music, and we're even going to talk about why people don't like them. Matthew, welcome to Junk Filter. Hey, thank you for having me, Jesse. I guess one place to start would be to talk to you a little bit about when you got Dan Pilled.
0: Yeah. Um, I I don't remember specifically how it happened, honestly, but I know it happened in my early 30s or maybe a little deeper into my 30s. Um, like Steely Dan was a thing that, uh, I, I mean, I knew Peg and Reeland in the Years from Radio growing up and not really knowing who it was is like, I, I always liked those songs, but I didn't really have any, like this, you know, it's the kind of songs you just hear like, oh, okay, that's, that's nice. Or you're just kind of half processing as a child. Um, but I mostly knew Steely Dan by the reputation that you were just kind of describing where, I, I mean, I was basically raised by Gen X, you know, culture writers and things like that. Um, that's the, like how a lot of my taste was formed because I, my family, it's not, um, they're not music people at all. So I wouldn't just like hear it because my dad was into it. My dad literally listened to no music. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I got into it like pretty much. W- I mean, I think I know, I know there's some people who are, who are giving me some Steely Dan stuff early on in my early twenties, but I don't think I really took to it just like little bits and pieces. Like, like randomly, I, I really liked, uh, through with buzz, that was on something mm-hmm. that someone gave me so mm-hmm. and that's like a that's a huge outlier steely dan song in so many different ways yeah um but yeah over time i just kind of like kept dipping my toe into it and getting a little bit more into it and then a little more into it and then at some point it just and i, I find this is happens to a lot of people is it it just kind of becomes this, this, this these brain worms that just start <laughs> taking over your head and you just start thinking about it more and more. And there's so much to think about and so much to read. And, you know, there's all, like, any given song has so much in it. Like there's like websites. Uh, there's a really good website online that's just kind of like a like a Steely Dan encyclopedia of like all different references they have. Have you seen this? No. Oh, it's really good. Um, I'll, I'll throw you a link. You could drop it in like show links or something, but it's really good. And like, there's, but there's just so much to it. And then, you know, I'm not a musician, but I, I think over time, my appreciation of music theory stuff of, of this musicianship kind of caught up with them. So, you know, even things that I would have just always liked, I understand more that oh this is the result of incredible sophistication on their part that is not common in all sorts of rock bands or and you know i mean i think the best steely dan stuff is like this weird stew where it's like a you know it's it's a they're a rock band they're a jazz band they're a funk band they're a you know r&b band they're, they're just doing a lot of different things and very few
1: of the songs are any one just one thing you know i'm gen x and i'm very solidly gen x and my childhood was basically lots of david bowie lots of joni mitchell lots of steely dan it all had a sort of an equal footing in my house and growing up and steely dan was a very popular uh band on the radio when i was a kid too they were played a lot on rock radio uh in particular, do it again. Reeling in the years, Peg and Deacon Blues were staples of our Toronto rock station Q one oh seven. They probably still play a couple of Steely Dan songs. I don't think they play Deacon Blues anymore, for instance. Yeah, I mean that's seven minutes—that's a lot of airtime. Yeah,
0: <laughs> <But> were they <laughs> but, was, was, um, were they
1: playing like Josie or Kid Charlemagne at all? Yeah, Kid Charlemagne. I didn't hear Josie too much though. Um, But it was also playing a lot in my house when I was a kid, too. Um, But I started to become sort of aware of popular music probably when I was maybe eight or nine years old, when I started actually trying to listen to uh, the sophistication of music and and music that wasn't just for children or for young people. Um, When I was a kid also, I wanted to be an adult as soon as possible. I was very much in a hurry to grow up, and I was watching grown-up movies <laughs> when I was nine or ten. And so, of course, Steely Dan also appealed to me too because it was like a glimpse into the world of the adults. Yeah, it's it's
0: actually one of the things that I think about when I listen to Steely Dan now is realizing that when once they finish Gaucho, I think they're about thirty-one and thirty-two, respectively which seems so young now. And Mm -hmm. it's, it's so hard for me to imagine this is the music of, of young men. Like everything about it is the music of, it it just seems like something that a much older person would have done. Like all of their inclinations, both musically and lyrically seem much older. Um, And I, I think maybe part of that is because they like you had a real interest in more adult things and more, uh, they they had a deeper interest in the past than probably most young people naturally do, um. But yeah, it's it's and also I think maybe partly because I've uh, to me and I, I've also seen them a bunch of times. I just like that's the image I have in my head of these guys who are, you know, in their late sixties,
1: you know, early seventies. So I, I also thought of Steely Dan as a couple of kinds of bands when I was a kid too because there were their first three records when they were playing together as a band and they had you know regular uh, side men uh, that were their first three which is Can't Buy a Thrill Countdown to Ecstasy and Pretzel Logic. Then I sort of think of Katie Lied as the halfway point where they started to offload the regular sidemen and started heading into an even jazzier sort of sound. And Michael McDonald came in. And then there's a second trilogy of immaculately conceived and produced jazz rock records that got increasingly fussy. Yeah. Um, Gaucho took like something like two years to
0: make. Right. And I think you know, a little bit of that was uh, because Walter Becker had, had kind of an increasingly bad heroin issue.
1: Um, his whole life was a disaster. Right. At that point. Yeah. He had a girlfriend who died of an overdose in his apartment, and then her family sued him for that. And then he got hit by a cab in New York and got confined to a wheelchair. And his heroin problem was was kind of out of control at that point. I don't have a sense of whether or not there was a heroin problem in the entire band, but Becker certainly had
0: a big, my my impression is that Donald Fagan is kind of a dabbler, but not really like an addictive person. Um, yeah, I I don't think that's ever been like a serious problem for him. Um, though I'm, I'm sure he's partaken quite a bit. Um, yeah, I think the, the other thing with Gaucho and, I think Asia as well is that those records had like astronomical budgets. They had budgets that are like inconceivable now. Um, mm. And so they could just really take their time. They could just, you know, take, <laughs> take ages to just figure out how to do seven songs or seven songs on both of those records. Um, there would have been an eighth for gaucho, but it, it fell through. Um, but yeah, they, they were just, There's one thing, I I can't remember what magazine I was reading. I was reading this pretty recently, where Donald Fagan was talking about um, having like this drum machine built specifically for Hay-19, and they barely used it. It was made specifically
1: for them. Was this the one Roger Nichols designed? I believe so, yes. Do you know that that technology was then... What turned into Pro Tools, right? Yes, it was a, I think I think he mentioned that in Bassing in that interview. They designed this computer drum machine or something for the album, and that technology was very much ahead of its time and actually informed the creation of Pro Tools. So, all you people out there who are you know who don't like Steely Dan, let me just advise you that you wouldn't have Pro Tools without the album Gaucho.
0: Yeah, Gaucho is really ahead of the curve in terms of
1: uh, digital recording. Um. Yeah, I, I don't it, think it was fully recorded digitally, but I do believe that The Nightfly was. Yes, The, the Nightfly is absolutely fully digital. Um, and it definitely sounds it. The Nightfly was Fagan's solo album because Steely Dan broke up in 1981.
0: Yes, and that record came out in 1982. Um, I always kind of consider The Nightfly... Uh, I, I consider it canonical, even though it's yep, uh, a too. Donald Fagan record... Um, it's kind of the end of the line, and then they, they they really just kind of drift for the better part of a decade, and until the early '90s when Chemicuriad comes out, and then they start touring together
1: again. And Fagan had a bit of a of a nervous breakdown right after the the Nightfly, because the thing about Steely Dan is that all their world weary lyrics and everything is maybe based on a true story, but is not necessarily autobiography. But the Nightfly was. Very, very much autobiographical. Yeah, It was all about Donald Fagan's youth. Yeah, growing up in New Jersey. um, Yeah, my
0: impression is that without Becker, Fagan kind of was adrift. And uh, even if you listen to him uh, talk about other things he's done without him, he just kind of learned to internalize what Walter would probably tell him. Mm -hmm. You know, but he was just... They, those two like it's I think one of the beauties of Steely Dan and the work they did is you know it's hard to say like where one ends and the other begins, and um, you can kind of like look at specific things and you can kind of reverse engineer stuff if you you know if you're inclined you know obviously mm-hmm. like the piano chords are usually probably Donald's because he's a piano player, but the lyrics is really hard to tell like who is who' because they wrote all of them together, mm-hmm. I think walter's stuff leaned a little bit more sardonic and donald's stuff leaned a little bit more emotional and also a little bit more fantastical like he's the one who's inclined to uh do like a sign in stranger which is a song that's kind of about like uh a colony for like a prison colony in outer space where we just send undesirables like an intergalactic australia
1: (laughs) that's right Matthew, can you tell our listeners a little bit about the young Donald Fagan and Walter Becker and how they met cuz that is so informative about the trajectory of their career. Right. Like they met each other
0: when they were both at Bard College, uh, which is in uh New York, kind of a little bit upstate. Uh I think Becker grew up in Queens, if I recall correctly, and and Fagan grew up in just like just outside of the city in New Jersey. Um, so like, you know, they, they, they're kind of guys like, just like me. Cause I mean, I grew up not like, in either of those two places, but I grew up in the same kind of proximity to New York city, uh, where it kind of, I think I, I relate to this thing that they both had where it's just like, you know, you just know that's where the, that's where the stuff is. That's where, that's where the life is. And you're just kind of stuck on the outside, you know, um, cause, uh, Becker, I think lived like way out in Queens, way, way, way out where it's just basically the suburbs. Um, but yeah, they, they met at school and I think they, they just kind of connected pretty easily. I, I remember Donald Fagan has a, uh, a book called, uh, what was it called? Eminent hipsters. And it's not, I don't necessarily recommend this book um, because it's, it's kind of like one of the more half-assed uh, music biographies you'll ever find. Cause like, a lot of it is just kind of repurposed articles that he wrote, uh kind of in that '80s zone where he, he's not really doing music, but he's writing like essays about movies in magazines, mm-hmm. like uh, the I can't remember which one, maybe it's film comment or something like that. Um And so there's a lot of essays like that, and then there's a couple things that are kind of autobiographical, and then like the entire second half of it is just an incredibly bitchy. Uh, tour diary and it's not even with steely dan it's with the the dukes of september which is like a super group with of him and michael mcdonald and boz skaggs (laughs) you know and it's that that that, that's pretty interesting when you get a sense of like the the comforts that he had grown accustomed to with steely dan like he mentions um the thing that they would do when they would do like a national tour is they would just kind of find a centrally located hotel that they liked stay there and they would fly out to the shows and come back to the to the, the hotel after the show while the the bands uh were in the crew were just kind of going around in buses from place to place uh but like really but, but, but yeah but the tour diary he is uh on a bus he's kind of living a little closer to the ground like there's parts where he's just like going to see like Spider-Man 2 uh, in the movie theater and like hating the 3d, <laughs> you know, it, it's funny to think of, of, of
1: uh, Donald Fagan going
0: to see a Spider-Man movie.
1: Well, these, what I love about these guys and what I sort of can semi relate to from my own childhood, although maybe that's why Steely Dan spoke to me so much is that while they were being themselves at Bard, this was like 1965 or something. This was at the beginning of the age of Aquarius, but these two dudes were obsessed with beatnik culture. Yeah, they're obsessed with like Charlie Parker. decidedly. But like, so they loved William S. Burroughs. They loved Charlie Parker. They loved um, Billy Eckstein. It was their, what they were interested in was decidedly out at that point. But they embraced it wholeheartedly. And so they were complete outsiders at school. And I have a funny quote from one of their classmates at Bard College, this guy named Terrence Boylan, quote, They never came out of their room. They stayed up all night. They looked like ghosts. Black turtlenecks and skin so white that it looked like yogurt. (laughs) Absolutely no activity. Chain smoking, lucky strikes, and dope. Yeah, that's our boys. And weren't they thrown out of the school? Isn't that what my (laughs) old school is about? Yes, yes. Um, And there's a whole... There's that line
0: in that song about like uh, Gino and Daddy G... And uh, Daddy G is G Gordon Liddy, who would later Mm -hmm. be involved in the. uh, the In Watergate, Watergate, yes. I was was blanking on like one of the the crucial events of the uh, American 20th century. (laughs) Sorry about that. Um, Let a Canadian tell you about Watergate. Yes, Um, Right. But like, yeah, there's like, I can't exactly remember what was going on with that. But yeah, it's just like, you know. G. Gordon Liddy has a very bizarre uh, cultural footprint that involves being mentioned in like one of the, the great anthemic Steely Dan songs, like one of the highlights of any Steely Dan show.
1: Um, So these guys, Becker and Fagan got contracts as, um, were they the band for Jay and the Americans? Were they in the band or were they just writing songs? I think they were most, I think there was a little bit of both, but they started gravitating
0: towards the idea of like, no, we were, we're composers. You know, they, they, they were trying to get like, I mean, I guess like their their, their earliest gig was basically um, of, of uh, that kind of led to Steely Dan it was, you know, kind of a, a songwriting partnership thing, you know, kind of in the bro building style uh, that just kind of
1: mutated into Steely Dan. It was back when you could still do that, like get a song, get a job as a house songwriters. So they were like label songwriters for ABC Records, but I don't think they got all that much uh, recorded I think they were just spinning their wheels to a certain extent but the funny part was that they actually did a reverse takeover of, of the band like Steely Dan was a band founded by a guy named Denny Diaz or co-founded by him and they answered an ad that he put out for musicians and the ad even said that they didn't want the, the ad even said no assholes apply, need apply no assholes need apply But fortunately, they didn't. They just disregarded that part of the one. They just didn't know it. But then two years later, they just took the uh, band over.
0: Yeah. Well, Denny Diaz is like uh, the mainstay of that era, and he and he plays on. Yeah. I mean, he plays on records up through Gaucho. Like he's he's really. uh, You know, if there's a number three guy in Steely Dan, he is it. Mm -hmm. Well, unless you're counting uh, Gary Katz, then then he's number four.
1: Yeah. But, Gary Katz uh, is the producer. Yeah, Gary Katz and Roger Nichols were their two producers. And one of the things that was so interesting about Steely Dan as I was sort of trying to understand how music worked and how rock and roll worked was that they were unique in the sense that they had this they were they started off as a collective of of a band but then they started to turn into a collective of rotating studio musicians for hire. But there were basically two levels of organization. There were the players, and then there were their, their engineers. Yeah. And this was one thing, like, one thing that is a leitmotif of this conversation, I hope, is that I think that there's a real correlation between Steely Dan and cinema. And one of the things that I can detect as a connection between Steely Dan and film is their sort of Kubrickian perfection that they would spend months on a song they would bring in players to play identical lines and then they choose the most precise one that that's a really good
0: specific comparison they would, they probably are the stanley kubrick of, of rock and roll yeah the, the, the to the point of exhausting the, the their crew and players um mm-hmm. and i think like one thing the, their approach to putting bands together of get you know just for like one song of this it's it's basically there's casting right there's just casting uh players they're casting people to do like the lines and the roles in, in a film and this isn't like totally unique to see Dan but I think it really does connect with a with a you know like this is the closest thing you do to make like a an album as a as a movie you know where you're mm-hmm. just trying to get like I think you 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 know, you're just firing the guy because he's like, this guy can't do the lines right. He's not doing the cadences I, I want them the way I hear it in my head. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think that, you know, there, there's part of it is like they had a sense of what they wanted it to be. Like they could hear it in their head, but they also wanted to be surprised. Like they, they would often prefer the parts that were done uh, beyond their own imagination.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, they had ideas in their head that they were as good as they were as musicians. They didn't have the finesse or the chops to really do it. One thing that I love, a quote from Stanley Kubrick that I think also applies to Steely Dan, because Kubrick was so famous for, you know, 100 takes of things. The way he described his uh, working method is he said, I don't always know what I want, but I know what I don't want. Yeah. And that's the reason why he keeps doing it. And so Steely Dan would run their musicians through that kind of thing. Like they'd have to do it and do it, do it again, if you will, (laughs) uh, endlessly. And then they'd be greeted with sarcasm by the guys if they didn't like what they did. But like, um, I think there was a bit of a revolving door at sometimes. Like there are 40 credited musicians on Gaucho, but God knows how many people came in to almost try out.
0: I was thinking just now of a part that's there's that uh, famous like making of Asia documentary that people can mm-hmm. find on YouTube, but also on like mm-hmm. Amazon Prime and things like that. Um, where Chuck Rainey is talking about being told by the band, by, 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 Walt by Walter and Donald uh, we we don't want uh slapping on this I think there's just a lot of slapping going on records in the yes. late 70s and they were like oh we don't want that but <laughs> like Rainy just does it anyway and it, they and they're like you know, nope we were wrong like Chuck was right so I, yes. I think it's a really good example of like they're, they're not like these ruthless tyrants who who aren't who, who lack imagination beyond what they can imagine what, what they have in mind um, they were open to collaboration, but they just wanted something. I think they just had a really good sense of what the songs needed to be. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the they, they, they were open to trial and error to get to where the songs needed to go.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Let's talk a little more about the relationship between Cinema and Steely Dan. Um, not only are there songs that explicitly reference film techniques there are songs um like we can talk about one song the controversial everyone's gone to the movies which is a song that's pretty peppy but then you when you actually read the lyrics you realize that it's a song about a guy who's inviting kids over to his house to show them eight millimeter porn loops yes it's very it's the, the the writing is very subtle but once you know what it is you know But but that's a really funny song because it's it sounds like it's about going off to the movies, but it's actually about a pederast (laughs) showing (laughs) sleazy loops to children and their parents being happy because now they have the house to themselves. I I realize that that song
0: is probably like the the prototype for what they did much later on um, when they come back in the 2000, uh, the record. Yeah, um, what was it? Uh, Every I'm sorry, uh, two against nature, like almost every song on two against nature has like a similar premise where it's like you're just listening to an absolute sleaze This kind of like talk about (laughs) the things that he's trying to do and like the way he's trying to like convince some innocent person to do something that they really shouldn't do or don't want to do yeah <laughs> like the, the, that premise just became way more fascinating to them uh as they were older men and that record like i haven't really fully connected that one like i only recently started really paying attention to those last two records in large part because i had just kind of like well i have listened to all this steely dan and yet i want more well here's the more mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um but yeah i think i i've, I've listened to uh uh, two against nature a lot more than the record after that, but two against nature I, th- I think of as being kind of like you know, just kind of move along with like just a, a movie comparison. I, I think of it as being like a different genre where the, I, I don't. I think the other ones are probably more dramas or or, or comedic dramas in the way like let's say a Sopranos is you know like that kind mm-hmm. of like synthesis. Whereas I think that record is definitely just a full on farcical comedy. It's it, And it feels like, um, like later period Woody Allen movies. But whereas Woody Allen is doing this, like his, his, his whole creepy thing, like fairly sincerely, like this knows yeah. that it's all creepy and that's the whole point yeah. of it.
1: Yeah. I mean, gaucho is one big, long creep fest from people who are very aware that they're past their prime and that that they could be doing something else and that this is, you know, kind of a tragic end.
0: Yeah. I mean, the whole catalog is obsessed with various forms of losers. And, you know, I think, like, the earlier records, they they like a more noble loser. But as they move on through their career uh, and as they get older,
1: like, they definitely like a more farcical loser. Well, even... um, Walter Becker described that their music is, is about epic loserdom, which was a very, very great way of putting it. Like, it's not just being a loser. It's like Deacon blues is like an epic loser song. Yeah. Epic. It's like aspirational to, 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 to become like a Deacon blues type.
0: Like. <laughs> to, to drink malt whiskey to, all night long and die
1: behind the wheel. It's the dream. Jesse. Yeah. That's the dream. Um, and learn to work the saxophone too. Yeah. Um, Uh, A little bit more about the film stuff, like there's celluloid bikers in glamour profession. The song Haitian Divorce, which I do want to talk to you about in detail in a minute, uh, mentions camera and editing in the lyrics. Now we dolly back, now we fade to black. There's some kind of a shoot going on in Peg that may or may not actually be a porn shoot. It might just be cheesecake, but there's all sorts of uh, filmic detail in that. And I also wanted to mention... Donald Fagan's song, New Frontier, which was a very cinematic music video. Oh, it even had a I title love that party. song.
0: That's that's one of my favorite of the post-Gaucho songs.
1: But it, the video is like a little mini movie about a young couple having a date in a bomb shelter. It's very memorable. Lots of animation. But I just feel that there's there's something cinematic about everything that's going on with Steely Dan. The way that they, uh, that they tell these sort of lewd film noir narratives and... Um, high production design even though it's a record there's very something sweeping about it certainly compared to everybody else around them I, i was thinking about this when when
0: you first like just kind of brought up the idea of them being like you know cinematic in their way and you know giving that some thought listening to some of the records since you mentioned that the thing that occurred to me was like a lot of these things would be could be good movies but they're better as songs like they're better in this kind of this miniature like you could extend mm-hmm. a lot of these into like a full length film narrative but i don't know if they would really improve on the ideas yeah like vacation divorce is a good example like i, I don't really want to watch a full movie of haitian divorce necessarily
1: well, in the in the sort of tweet storm that I did about Steely Dan, which I am prone to do on the internet, is um, that I consider that song Haitian Divorce to be the litmus test for Steely Dan. Like, that's the song that you want to listen to to decide whether or not you like them. That's an interesting—because that's one I don't really listen to a lot,
0: honestly. I, like, the only time I ever listen to Haitian Divorce is if I'm, if I'm listening to the Royal Scam and Complete.
1: That's a song that I hated when I first heard it, even though I liked Steely Dan. Because it has all these hateable elements to it. But this is an, another example of of the high level of sort of comic sophistication and, and, and irony that they engage in on a regular basis. Because it's got all this stuff that makes you want to run screaming from the room, like fake Jamaican reggae. Right. It's, it's and- is,
0: there, is, there, is there one kind of like fake reggae song?
1: And it's got a guitar talk box, like Peter Frampton, uh, like completely of its time and completely irritating to listen to. The lyrics are a little questionable and they're doing, you know, It's but it's a song that I've warmed to and, and now fully appreciate as a construction, if not as a great song, but as, you know, a, a provocation that actually succeeds. And, and really, it's, it's become a song that I really like now. But I also what know was it that, that is connected? The
0: like, what was the the moment that made you realize like oh, I want wow, this song this one actually goes.
1: I don't know exact I can't put it into words, but it's just there's something so cringe inducing about it as it comes because it also stands apart from all the other songs on the record. But it, it got its hooks into me for some reason. I started to appreciate it as a little mini, drama that is also based on a true story, right? Because Haiti was actually running, um, uh, there was a system going in Haiti where you could go there to get divorced, but both partners didn't need to be there for the divorce. So you could go and divorce your spouse by going over there and getting a divorce without them knowing. Yeah, an incredible racket. (laughs) (laughs) And of course, they also provided a possibility for you to meet a new person when you were there too. But the song is about a, a couple that, breaks up but the woman i guess the woman goes to haiti to get divorced and then meets a guy and gets pregnant and comes back and is rejected by her family but that's not what you think when you're listening to yeah. the song that's when you read the lyrics Yeah, i'm
0: actually gonna take that back that might actually merit a full-length movie i think there's enough meat there to like do a pretty good movie on that
1: yeah but like i know that somebody who doesn't like steely dan would say Oh, I, I hate this band when they hear that song. Or take this record and throw it in the garbage.
2: That's the now back. Now fade to back.
1: When I was a kid, it was it was hugely embarrassing to tell anybody that you liked Steely Dan. To tell anyone your age. It would be like telling them that you just enrolled in a jazzercise class. It was deeply uncool. And most of the people that I knew, like the the fans of punk rock and stuff, Steely Dan were like the Doobie Brothers and Fleetwood Mac. They were the enemy. They were the reason that punk was invented. And I don't think younger people have that kind of animus towards Steely Dan. Well, they certainly don't have the animus towards Fleetwood Mac. No, Fleetwood Mac's been completely rehabilitated. Fleetwood Mac is now just kind of like
0: entirely unassailable to like people of like all generations. (laughs) It's actually, I've actually mentioned this in the past to people who are younger than me that, yeah, there was a, there was a good stretch of time there where like Sealy, where where, I'm sorry, where Fleetwood Mac were just kind of like, really not cool. It was embarrassing to, you know, like the Smashing Pumpkins covering Landslide was kind of like, oh, that's a, that's a weird move, you know? Mm. Um...
1: Yeah, but uh, that all just kind of gradually changed. Um, I think one reason why it changed is because younger people aren't carrying around that kind of cultural baggage. Like one reason why Gen X hated a lot of boomer music so much was because they hated boomers. Right. People who are not that much older than
0: them. But you know, nope. you're reacting against something. And I mean, a lot of culture... A lot of those cultural biases just kind of get handed down to people without them really giving any thought. You're just kind of like, oh, well, well that cool person said this. So, you know, they're probably right. Uh, and that mm-hmm. we've all, at, you know, different points in our life have either been one of the people in that com- in that conversation. Uh, I certainly have been both. Um But yes, I think uh, Steely Dan for me absolutely was poisoned by that Gen X hatred of it. I just did not listen to it almost entirely because I had just been warned off to it. By by mm-hmm. the by the older writers and not really actually people that I know. There's mostly writers I think, uh, or you know I think or, or like um, I'm a big fan of uh, the best show on WFMU with Tom Sharpling. Yes, and Tom Sharpling famously loathes Steely Dan and will just never come around on it yeah but like i definitely like <laughs> look up this or, or
1: I'll or I'll know somebody who's very cool and has very uh is is on point about all their opinions and then they say steely dan is the worst band of all time and i don't understand <laughs> how you could feel that way especially if you're also somebody who uh uses irony and and dark wit all the time it's like very defensively against steely dan doing it It i my theory is is pop psychology that there's somebody that they hate in their life who loves steely dan therefore i hate that i hate steely dan one of the things like i feel that it's got to be something uh about deeper feelings they have about something else that steely dan is a connection to Uh, one of the things i noticed uh that this kind of stigma
0: around Steely Dan doesn't really exist in the black community where Steely Dan is, no. has always been very respected and it's always been like one of like the white bands that were like were cool and acceptable and you know i think part of it is because you know Steely Dan work with so many incredible black musicians um yeah. and we're and we're dry we're, we're drawing on a lot of black music but like adding to it and not just being like people who are just aping stuff now there's a lot of boomer bands that did that um Mm -hmm. but steely dan always did their own thing and they they were additive they were they they would kind of like take an idea and go a couple steps further with it you know they were you know uh not hacks you know Mm -hmm. but yeah i think but, but, but you know and you see that you mentioned before like like you know they got sampled a lot in rap. Uh, like the, the two most famous examples, I think, is like "I Know" uh, by Dayla Soul from like their three foot three feet high, three and, feet rising, high and rising, which is like a major uh, rap classic that is like, how be- almost like doesn't exist because they can't put it on streaming. Um, yeah. And then, uh, oh god, what is the, I can't remember, the Lord Tariq. Deja Vu? Yes, uh, yeah, exactly.
2: New York mm-hmm. to the heart, but got love for all Line die in the fire, where I learned the ball. Uptown mm-hmm. is the place where I lay my dome. On the streets mm-hmm. of the Bronx where my family roam. Oh, damn it we home. Peter got a nine millimeter Player haters can feel the flame for my heater. I never really liked to play a fool
0: like that, but I love to succeed
2: See foes fall flat mm-hmm. Flat,
0: like Deja Vu And I got um, another with the, clip that i cow and they they didn't screw over de la soul the way they screwed over them the, the uptown baby song because they took
1: like 100 of the songwriting on that and that's like that their only hit well let's do a quick lightning round i'm gonna hit you with some of the common complaints about steely dan and you you can give me your reactions to it of course <laughs> you might agree you might disagree but i think i've did some research and i think that this is what are the major knocks against steely dan Audio guys love them. They're too anal. They're too fastidious. They're too precise. Yeah, all those things are true. And, you know, I think Asia
0: is pretty famous for being uh, a record that people test uh, their stereo systems on. Welcome to the land of Steely Dan.
2: Steely Dan. Asia, a continent of the mind.
0: Asia, on ABC Records. I mean, but yeah, Asia and Gaucho are very clean. And it took me a while to kind of really get on, especially with Gaucho, because Gaucho is almost like surreal how clean that record is.
1: But the way I described Gaucho is as if they pumped their own oxygen into the studio. It's like completely artificial uh feel to it, like completely controlled environment, I mean.
0: Yeah. And when you listen to the drums on that record and they're so crisp. Like my favorite mm-hmm. song by Steely Dan is and my favorite song on Gaucho is uh Time Out of Mind and Rick Marotta plays the drums in that song and it's so crisp. Like I mean, the, we mentioned before like they they had the they kind of built a drum machine specifically for Hey 19 but like Mer- rick marotta just plays that part you know like yeah. that guy is like such a a precise machine
1: of a player you don't yeah. need a machine if you if you have access to that dude okay next thing people hate about steely dan their attitude they're too cynical they've seen it all it's really irritating
0: yeah, they also don't like people very much. There's a real misanthropic edge to them, even beyond the cynicism. Um, yeah, I mean, that's true. I think that's part of the appeal, right? Like, you know, I'm not sure if I ever really interpret, like, the songs as mean. Like, they're about, like, losers and creeps, but they're
1: not really, like, Bullying kind of songs. They're not like no. They they always feel to me like the guys in the corner muttering about everybody else. Like they're not really doing any harm to anyone. Yeah, but yeah. There's there is a misanthropy to them that
0: is kind of a central factor, and it's probably part of how people connect to them in that sense, or like their image. And you know, I think that if you want like your rock stars and pop stars or whatever to be to seem like people that you'd want to hang out with then yeah i can imagine <laughs> steely dan is really not for you because steely yeah. dan really don't want to hang out with you that's right uh fagan's voice is irritating yeah maybe um i like i like i've come to really like donald's voice uh i do too it has it has it, he sings he sings technically well but not so well that it's as good as any of the players on the records, which I think is important because it kind of gives you this like more flawed human thing in the midst of like more virtuoso elements or really precise mm-hmm. and perfect elements. So like, he, I think he's very necessary as an element that I feel like it'd be weird to hear the songs by other people like, like, you know, I like for, I've never really cared for dirty work as much as a lot of people do because that's, yeah. that's not a Donald sung song. And it. when they play it live, it's, it's the, uh, the Danettes sing that one. Oh, really? Yeah. I, or, or, or if you're very lucky, like I was like the last Steely Dan show I saw in, uh, in uh, New York city, uh, Jenny Lewis sang dirty work with them. Oh, great. Yeah. And she did a great job and I have no idea how she came to do that, but it was it was very you good. Know, one, it re-
1: really worked. One of the millennials I was talking about said that his introduction to Steely Dan was when he saw American Hustle. What song did they use in that? I love that movie, but I don't they remember. They started the movie with "Dirty Work."
0: Yeah, that feels "Dirty Work." Apparently, is also in like the the trailer for like the Suicide Squad. Yes, I, I haven't seen that trailer, but yeah, no. for some reason, like "Dirty Work" really became like this like song that really took a hold in
1: movies and stuff. I and mean, obviously it's also very famously used in Sopranos. I want speaking of the Sopranos, I want to share with you a, another good tweet response that I got where the guy said that one reason why he likes Steely Dan is that he can't think of a band that does a better job of expressing that Tony Soprano feeling of coming in at the end when the best is already over and that when the, all that's left is to cling to marginal hipster credibility. Oh God, that's that's so accurate. That is exactly where they're coming from. That's their
0: entire worldview. The feeling like, man, it would have been so much better if we were there, you know, at the time of Charlie Parker, or even before that. But here we are, stuck in the rock era. Okay, yeah, we'll we'll do what we can.
1: Wasn't that great though? Yeah, wow. Um, so back to the um, reasons why people hate Steely Dan. Hold on, because I've got a couple more. Their fans are irritating. That's, That's true. I, I don't know. That seems subjective.
0: Um, like, <laughs> I mean, all the people I know who like Steely Dan a lot are like
1: on the cooler end of things. So I know I don't think of any of my friends who like Steely Dan as being irritating. But I don't know. Maybe they're talking about um, the people that they grew up with or something. Yeah, I don't know. You could say that about anything, honestly. If if, if you just know
0: a bunch of assholes i mean i'm sure like the more boomery people are kind of insufferable i mean but then like i think about like how people talk about steely dan online now uh, especially on twitter and like all those people are cool and funny you know yeah it's just like it's t- to me it's like one of the cooler like rock aligned fandoms that i have any as- association with
1: well steely dan twitter is real like, I, there's a few people that we all follow each other because we love making jokes about Steely Dan, and there's really, really funny tweets about that band. And it gets doubled up because so many people are irritated by Steely Dan that making jokes about Steely Dan irritates them, which is also funny. Yeah, it, it, I mean, I feel like it, like it's it's kind of a flex to be into Steely Dan now in a lot of different ways.
0: Yeah. And, and also, I mean, it's, I think it's also worth noting that Steely Dan at this point, you know, I think there, there were some times where – They were always a critic band for sure. They always got good reviews, but you know they definitely fell out of favor, especially as the Gen X cohort was more in control of things. But in the time since, like I don't know, like Steely Dan are pretty much universally accepted. Like they appear in like all the big canon lists. You know the the rolling stone like 500 which is with the the voting base which included me i should say um was was very diverse and like they got uh both asia and uh can't buy a thrill in that one and you know like like a few years ago like pitchfork had a whole week of just steely dan reviews and like most of them were just like rave reviews i think asia got a 10 you know yeah. I, I mean as it should be But, you know, I I think that any kind of stigma about them being uncool has really evaporated to the point that the people who would really, you know, at this stage of things really insist that like they suck or like, you know, like uh, they start seeming like the ones who are
1: out of it. The other great one is you are a dad if you like them. It means they just assume younger people maybe or people who hate Steely Dan think that it's music for dads. It's music for dads whose kid hates them and they hate the kid back and the ki- the dad's always going down in the basement and smoking a joint and listening to Steely Dan. They just associate it with dad taste.
0: Yeah, I mean I think there's there's something fair to that especially given like what their their the boomer end of their audience is like. Um mm-hmm. But I don't know if the younger end of the audience is like that. Um I know a lot of women who like Steely. Oh Dan. yeah, absolutely. And I I know I've I've seen a lot of Steely Dan shows and like I know that especially where I usually sit is usually the cheaper seats at the Beacon Theater. Like you just mm-hmm. see a lot of people who are pretty young who are cl- you could just kind of get the vibe off them that they are musicians. Mm-hmm. You know. They they're, they're definitely a band that musicians like for obvious reasons. Mm-hmm but yeah I, I like uh, there's yeah there's there's a fair number of women there's a fair yeah I, I don't know I, I feel like there's truth to that stereotype but I don't think it defines the band or who likes the band in the broadest sense of things I also feel like uh like we were saying before, what was I saying before? There's also a substantial black audience for Steely Dan. I don't know if those stereotypes apply to the black end of the audience. Well,
1: and they're also well aware of their whiteness too. I mean, that's part of what the big joke that they're always doing is. Yes, right. Like they're not
0: trying to be like like they know that they're making black music. That's it's their favorite thing, but they are not trying to pretend they are black guys they're not
1: you know they're they're, they keep it real you know if you you want to put it that way Mm. here's something that i was thinking as one reason why younger audiences may not be so opposed to steely dan is the way that they were introduced to their music um when i was growing up music fandom was very regimented before the internet you liked what you were given now people can go and find their own interests and in this algorithmic world when you're interested in something they send you something else you might be interested in yeah oh i it's mean it's a little more tailor made and i think that millennials and and gen z came up being able to sample all kinds of music without the cultural baggage of subcultures of like you know, boomers are versus gen X. I don't think that battle meant anything to anybody younger than 30
0: prior to MP3s and and certainly prior to streaming and things like that, you know, you had to buy records. You had to, and, and so you're, you had to, you know, in, making a purchase you're making kind of an identity statement and people would really uh like i i mean i'm just old enough to have some portion of my life be lived like this where you know you align with certain genres like the things the, the records you buy say something about you you know so i think a lot of that uh Gen X era, uh, late boomer Gen X era, like the and the anxiety about Steely Dan and like, oh my God, what if I got this jazz rock record? <laughs> what would it say about me? It would you know? It's just like it being kind of like this yeah. kind of taboo thing. Yeah, but once like those stigmas and those behaviors around getting records kind of dissolved. and i think even in the late 90s you know people the the fashion was more towards eclecticism so mm-hmm. you know it, the, people were, were starting to push against that even that, during that phase but yeah it's just not a the yeah the baggage just isn't quite there so it's just like do you like this song like did you happen to somehow hear it then you know i i think you know people are just hearing a song like peg and which is you know yeah. i think pretty undeniable song and just feeling like yeah this song goes like yeah this this is like a perfect groove everything about this song completely rolls you know
2: and when you smile
1: Is that it's not that long, oh, but it's so, but it's so perfect. That could be a seven or eight minute long song. Yeah, I think that, I, I think that perfect. would diminish Peg. Maybe you're right, but I could keep on listening to it. Is my point, like, and I certainly have put it right back on again after it's been done. Yeah, I mean that's. That, that's I think that's Steely
0: Dan records really stand up to being listened to over and over again. I think part of the the sophistication of the musicality. Lends itself to that because it's not like mm-hmm. I mean, there's a lot of stuff that you can really like a lot, but it's very simple and it doesn't really stand that repetition because your ear just kind of gets tired of it. Or is there so much mm-hmm. to kind of there's so much pleasing uh, going on in those Steely Dan songs, but also there's just little bits of things or, or things that you know your brain is processing that it's a little off, but you don't know why because you know you don't have a degree in music theory. You don't know they're playing a Mew chord. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, but yeah, there's there, it's just, you know, they're, they're really built to last. And I think that's a big part of why those records have stood the test of time, but also find new audiences, because there's also like nothing else like them. You know, yeah. you can kind of like pick apart, you know, the stuff that they're drawing on. But the actual combination of the things, there's like there's just no one else does this. I don't think anyone else is really capable of doing it you know certainly not on the compositional level like, like they're really you un- they're they're unique players and unique composers and their set of influences i think is almost impossible to replicate organically
1: mm-hmm. but i also consider the knocks against the band that they're too ar- that there's too much artifice that they're too distant and that they're too cold to me those are features they're not bugs yeah yeah it's part like, of what makes it interesting that's what i like about it And that the songs reveal themselves, like that they had all these popular songs that are actually about particularly dark material and sad material and lots of uh, stories about hard drug usage, like nobody bopping around at the ball game. Like when I was a kid, I went to see Jay's games and I do remember... Uh, as a little kid hearing time out of mind playing at the baseball stadium and then years later, discovering that it's about harold <laughs> that
0: that that's 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 such a weird song to choose, but it feels right in the moment like i, oh, I that just sounded so great at a ball game yeah, I can't tell. time it. out of mind is such a like I, I think part of the reason I go back to that song all the time because because it's like this surefire thing that like puts me in a good mood. like there's just like the music is just kind of like perfectly designed to feel like a perfect blue sky day mm-hmm. um yeah it's just like I, I mean i i i know this for a fact that i can be utterly miserable and put that song on and it will change my mood
1: um it's probably the happiest and, song on the record
0: <laughs> and, th- and that
1: song being
0: about is basically like a like a just dis- like a weird heroin guru
1: <laughs> yeah <laughs> I had no idea when I was little that that was what the song was about. Many of their songs are like that. You you weren't chasing Um, the dragon as a child? Nope. 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 One of my heroes musically is Serge Gainsbourg. And another thing that I love about Steely Dan and Gainsbourg is the way that they would get all this sort of like hidden meaning into these innocuous sounding songs. Like even Do It Again is about, you know, compulsive gambling. Yeah, but it sounds, it, it, and drug use. Um, but Gainsbourg famously wrote a song for uh, a young singer named Franz Gall called Les Sucettes," which was the lollipops. And it was all about this girl who loves to lick lollipops, but it was actually gross. <laughs> and she had no idea when she had a big chart hit. And then it was explained to her what the song was actually about and uh, was horrified. But I don't think that's why it was a big hit. But these were the sort of the insidious little j- inside jokes that he was getting across. And I love m- musicians that can play around in that space, even if they're up to no good. It makes
0: Yeah. It makes a lot of sense to me that like, especially when you're thinking of, of Steely Dan as being very film kind of music that Gainsbourg would be another thing for you. Cause like that, I mean, especially like the uh, Melody Nelson, that record like that's just kind of Mm -hmm. like a movie that happens to be like a 40 minute like music album that is that just really Mm -hmm. has the full vibe of a film but without the visuals. spent a bit of time in los angeles a a few years ago uh for work i would just kind of go there periodically for like a a week or the the longest i was there for like about a month and i listened to a lot of steely dan there just like walking around but I i was really like gravitating towards gaucho because gaucho is such a la record and you know it's just it's also just the novelty of listening to babylon sisters on sunset you know oh yeah Drive west on Sunset to the sea. That's one of my favorite opening yeah. outlines to an album.
1: Well, let's let's talk a little bit about the New York versus LA dichotomy of this band too because the band was primarily located in New York and I always think of the the chaos of the stuff that they're singing about and their sense of humor is a very New York attitude. But the music, especially at the end of their main phase with Asia and Gaucho, really really captures the feeling of of Los Angeles and the sort of hermetically sealed recording studios and this relentless perfectionism these beautiful sunsets and a decadent lifestyle hmm.
0: I mean I hear Asia I hear Asia is like the record that you make in Los Angeles when you're homesick for where you're from which is New York City in this case and I hear Gaucho is very much like okay we have acclimated to Los Angeles we have now a sick fascination with this place and you know the all the like pretty much all the characters in that record are extremely la type people like Babylon sisters is is basically a noir uh hey 19 is definitely a very uh, to me a very la kind of sleaze uh Mm -hmm. glamour professions about a drug dealer to the stars in los angeles you know maybe maybe the one song that i wouldn't necessarily consider like very Californian as a uh, gaucho itself. Cause I feel like that could just be in any urban setting. I mean, that's just about like a gay couple who are having a squabble in this like futuristic luxury high of rise called the Custer dome.
1: And this reminds me, Matthew, I, I, I want to say one of the special relationship that I have with Steely Dan is that my parents were both gay. Oh, no I was kidding. raised in a very gay friendly household and as a young person, as I was also trying to figure out the world of adults, Steely Dan was one of the bands that had songs that actually felt like they were related to the gay experience, even if they weren't gay songs per se.
0: Yeah, they, they, they acknowledged gay that people as having like full lives.
1: Yeah. I don't think Steely Dan gets enough credit for... Her. There's, I think that a lot of gay people growing up probably got a lot of solace out of songs like any major dude will tell you. Yeah. And uh, and Ricky, Don't Lose That Number, which Tom Robinson covered as an explicitly gay uh, version of that song. The mo- The song itself is ambiguous, and people like to make great great go through great lengths to say that the Ricky in that song is female. Having been raised by gay people, I've, I felt that those songs had special significance as I was trying to understand the world of adults and the world of, uh, you know, Same sex desire that Steely Dan was not judgmental about that stuff and that they left that they left room for that kind of interpretation. Yeah, and I have found that a lot of people who've written about Steely Dan don't really deal with that, but I think that that's very important.
2: I have a friend in town, he's heard your name.
1: think is great about gaucho because that's very much a song about a squabbling gay couple but generous enough as well that it that it depicts an actual chaotic gay relationship of which they're you know it's not it's like a different form of aspirational it's like true equality is when a gay couple can have this uh, really bitchy fight and set it to music
0: yeah i think the thing that they were going for was like you know Yeah, exactly that thing where like they they definitely knew just like gay dudes and stuff like that. They knew a lot of people. They knew a lot of cool people and they were just observing it and they weren't judging it. They were just like, okay, we will now do this. I think like them doing a song like Gaucho specifically. I don't think that they were trying to impress anybody. I don't think they were trying to necessarily offend anybody. They were just telling a story about these two guys. And uh, this other dude. And, and this the, totally and the embarrassing
1: situation. Like, you know, my, my dad knew gay people like that, for sure. They were in our house. And I love the fact that a song like that existed.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think to me, like, the, the, their, the, the crux of their fascination in that song is probably the Custer Dome. And I, because that song is really about class more than it's about sexuality. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, it's about the embarrassment of somebody who's not in our world being brought in here. Yeah.
2: What I tell you back down the line I'll scratch your back, you can scratch mine No, he can't sleep on
1: Also has such incredible. Uh, I, I said that like I don't think any subject in the song gets ethered as hard as the one in Gaucho. Like the lyrics are just one incredible diss after another. <laughs> <laughs> oh God! Don't tell me he'll wait in the car, <laughs> <laughs> holding hands with the man from Rio.
0: Um. Oh, but I also I, I think this- of the the lines like. Uh... The boodacious uh, cowboys, such, cowboy, such, such as is your friend, such as your friend, will never be welcome yeah. here, high in the Custer Dome. Who is the gaucho amigo? Yeah, you know, right. Like, so th- there's 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 a there's a, a racial element to it as well.
1: Yeah, but that's that is part and parcel with the reality that they saw. I think you know this, like, and it, it's probably a really drugged out little household too. Yeah. Yeah, and, and these are, so, yeah, they, they're saying things, I mean, I don't know. Like, but, like, who else was who, depicting that kind of who's thing doing
0: in the that now? History? Like, I can think of, like, artists who have, like, you know, somewhat similar interests. But the, that level of granular detail and having it really not be about them. Like, it's a really ob- observational style of writing. Like, mm-hmm. I'm sure there's a few songs in the Steely. I know there's a few songs in the proper Steely Dan catalog that more are more about their own experiences. Like I think like two very famous ones be like my old school and real and in the years. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. But those are outliers. Most of those songs are really just about like fascinating characters and scenarios that they've imagined. Mm-hmm. Or, or, or even stuff where it's like there is something, but like you know, a song like "The Fez," for example, which is very minimalist and just leaves you wondering so much about just a couple lines. Yeah, there's almost no language in that song. Like people argue uh, whether it's about the condom or you know, literally a, a fez. I, I, I yeah. prefer to think that it's about condoms and like the, the you know. <laughs> They never do it without. I'll
1: Betheson. listen to it with that in mind. I yeah. I just thought it was about a hat. actually.
0: Yeah. Well, the uh, fez is uh, slang for condom. Okay. Never do it without the fez on.
1: Um, oh, there you go. Okay. How how, how blind? Yeah. Am I these days? And they're just being like this.
0: Yeah, the fez is a really interesting one. That's and that's one of the few songs where there's like a there's another uh, songwriter credit. I can't remember what player it was, but they just gave him credit for, as a co-author.
1: I want to say one more complimentary thing about the actual compassion that Steely Dan has on, on a personal level. Like, I went through some depression a few years ago, and one of the songs that was a bit of a balm for me was a Steely Dan song, which was any major dude will tell you. That's a really which to me one. was very therapeutic. What, what was it about I think it? That, I think that it's a song that has provided solace for people that this too shall pass. Any
0: any uh, minor world that comes apart will come together again, something like that.
1: When the demon is at your door in the morning, it won't be there no more. Yeah. I just feel that that song has probably saved some lives. I think that like gay people that were trying to put together the courage to come out, depressed people, people who've suffered loss, I think that the, the it's a very compassionate song. It's about someone trying to help somebody out and telling them that it's going to be okay. This from a band that is famous for being mean. Yeah.
2: I can tell you all I know, the where to go, the what to do. You can try to run, but you can't hide from what's inside of you.
1: But what, what's funny is that you, when I was like reading up on the song, I I got deflated at how sweet. Uh, Steely Dan might deep down be because they said that they wrote that song because when they first arrived in LA, everyone was calling everybody dude. So they were just trying to speak their language. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, well, yeah, they're, they're, they're fascinated with words. Of course they would. And with the sounds of words and how words sound together, which is another thing that not everybody remembers when they write songs is like how all the words hook up to each other
0: yeah the the words is just kind of being a musical element like i think i think a majority of the artists i've liked the most over the years like really recognize that and you know and some of them probably leaning more into abstraction than steely dan does but Mm -hmm. i think even in like you know uh, like any major dude has a couple like really like like the the squark's tears line you know that's a reference to Borges. Yeah, it's it, it's so obscure but it's also like a it's it's kind of a, a surreal line
1: in context. Mm-hmm. When I first heard it I was like is that from Naked Lunch because the band's named after uh a dildo from a strap-on from Naked Lunch is the is a Steely Dan. So I just assumed that was a reference to Burroughs but I found out it's to Borges. Yeah. So I love Gaucho and I want to talk to you about my Gaucho problem. Because gaucho has always meant a lot to me, but I've joked that sometimes every day is a struggle to not just put gaucho on again (laughs) during this pandemic. Like, it's like, Oh, what do I do today? What should I listen to? You know what? I'm going to listen to gaucho. I've made that decision many times in this pandemic. I find um, Steely Dan sort of is, has been very enjoyable as we've all been in this lockdown, but for me, Gaucho is the one that speaks to me the most, and um, I think it's because we can't live the the fun lives that they're living. I think it gives us some vicarious thrills of uh, of uh, you know a decadent lifestyle that we're all not allowed to have these days. Yeah, I think that's why I really get into it. And and Gaucho is kind of the fun album. one, right? It's
0: it's the it's the fun Steely Dan record, sure.
1: So
2: fine outside the stadium. Special delivery for Hoops McCain. Rude and charisma. Odd from the shadow when he
1: stood. Look there's darkness me. to it, but the sound is a very fun sound, I think. Yeah, it's a very, very, uh, and long songs, like eight-minute-long songs, perfect length of music to what? to while I mean, the time away. When I think of Gaucho too, as I feel like the darkness on Gaucho isn't as dark as
0: in like the, on other records they have. You know, yeah, it's not as sinister. You know, you don't really have like, and they're, they're, the, the losers on that record are kind of like. They know they're losers. Yeah, but they're, but they're not but they're not, they're not as pathetic as other characters that they would write before or after that record. Mm-hmm. There's mm-hmm. uh I think they probably identify a little bit more with the the guy in Hey 19, for example. Yeah.
1: Knowing that she's a little young for you.
0: Yeah, and like they're like 30 at the time, so <laughs> I know. You know. It's
1: so funny how how uh, how things have changed. Like I remember you know the Beach Boys Love You album, one of my favorites. The their sort of comeback in the mid 70s when Brian Wilson finally came out of bed and they recorded The Beach Boys Love You. This was 1977 and there's a hilarious photo in the in the inner sleeve of the Beach Boys celebrating a birthday together and they all look like they were all fished out of a drain pipe. Like they all look like shit. And Brian was 32 he looked 52. i i think there's a weird thing that people age better now
0: I, i'm, I'm I, yeah, I think it's you know lucky lucky for us because you know in a different era <laughs> we might just be completely destroyed men but you know i am i'm, I'm yeah. still pretty baby
1: faced you know i can pass yeah me a little too younger but but uh but just to see these guys like i guess it's the hard living rock and roll lifestyle but like i mean brian still wilson was impossibly hard. young yeah but but Steely Dan were impossibly young to be so jaded, but they were always jaded. They were jaded when they were in college. Yeah. I mean, it was just like, for
0: them, it's a lifestyle choice. This is like, that was just like the, uh, <laughs> like they're, you know, you know, there's always people like that, you know, where like, they're just the ones who are like really young and they just really hate being young. I think you kind of mentioned that before. Yeah. Like I, I can kind of relate to that too. I think I was always this kind of waiting to be like over 30.
1: Um, mm-hmm. And I was always looking for culture that would point me the way towards adulthood. And for me, Steely Dan was that. Yeah,
0: right. And like Steely Dan is this like unapologetically adult music. And in the way that I think like a lot of the films of their era is like really unapologetically adult in a way that even films and things that are meant for adults now is not quite the same, where i think i think there is and maybe it's because it was the boomers in this large cohort of people all becoming adults at the same time and all being like yeah yeah we're adults now you know Mm -hmm. like maybe part Mm -hmm. of it is that or you know uh but i feel like people you know the boomers themselves bounce away from that before too long um once they realize that aging is not cool
1: for them um well, boomers sometimes doubled down and pretended they weren't old. Yeah. Like, they, they worried that they were too old while they were still young, and then they pretended that they were still young while they were too old. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I, I feel like that. Like the, it's funny the way like the the millennials and boomers kind of have like these certain resonances with each other, and you know the, they're largely millennials are largely the children of boomers, and the, the the Gen Z cohort that's coming up now are largely the the children of Gen Xers, and you know there's mm-hmm. a lot of I think there's a lot of similarities between those two cohorts, probably even more so than the others, because they're 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 kind of forged in very similar uh situations or or just kind of the idea that like you know like you know economies collapsing and you know you you kind of swap out uh the uh you know climate change is one thing and the the fear of like nuclear war is the other you know one cohort has aids the other one gets pandemic and then probably more pandemics later yeah you know they're they're they're, they're kind of shaped by similar things that kind of make you have diminished expectations for life and Mm -hmm. i think boomers and millennials have a much more rosy outlook and i feel like you know I, i don't feel like the like walter and
1: donald really shared that kind of optimism about the future no not at all not at all um, they they did what they could. Here's a very funny response, because I was asking some of the Steely Dan Twitter people uh, who are younger than me why they like Steely Dan and what is it about them that really resonates with them. And I love this answer. Somebody wrote back and said, as someone born into a generation that has pretty much no hope financially, listening to Steely Dan is as close as I will ever get to the level of carefree vibin' that boomers enjoyed. Huh interesting
0: it's not really what i get from those records but i guess like you were kind of saying that's kind of what you were getting from gaucho in the pandemic
1: yeah it's like the it's the vibe the vibin and gaucho certainly speaks to me for that because it's like just perfect it's perfect music for um driving around with the top down at night in california i put this list together that uh on twitter where i said that Here's here's a short list of gangsta Steely Dan songs, and so I put Babylon Sisters on there, and I put uh, Ricky, don't lose that number, and I put Peg and Josie, and the, like people were like, you forgot this, you forgot that, <laughs> but like I realized that like, oh yeah, actually, you could just put Steely Dan on and go driving. You don't need to put a playlist together. <laughs> yeah.
0: Is, is, so you're saying just before that the you know having your experience like really intensify. During the pandemic, like having a lot of focus on those records. And I found a, a, a similar experience, but like not really tied to the pandemic, but like really at some point a few years ago, Steely Dan really became like one of the default things I listened to. If I can't decide what I want to put on, I would mm-hmm. put them on all the time. And like the other major default thing for me was also uh, Stereo Lab. Yes. And I love them you know, too. like they're kind of different moods, but I feel like they're, they're, there's certain similarities and like ways that, that make them very easy default things to listen to. Um, mm-hmm. they, they also, I can, I can also put them on and not really think about them too much. Although they both merit thinking about closely as well. Um, yeah, they just sort of augment what you're doing. Yes. And I think like, I definitely listen to, you know, there's like a period I had of, of a really bad depression around like 2013, 2014. And that's really around the time I started listening to st- listening listen to this daily down very seriously. Mm-hmm. And I think, I, yeah, I think like, wh- but didn't it help <sighs> help? I don't, I wouldn't know if I could say help in the sense that you have that experience with any major dude. Like I I wasn't really having like emotional experience, but I think like I was having the exact opposite because like for me, like depression takes the form more of like a blankness. Yes. So I think especially Stereolab, I was really drawn to it because like there's a certain like geometric quality to, to Stereo Lab where you can listen yeah. to them and it's almost it's it's very abstracted in, in a lot of ways. And
1: mathematical. Yeah yeah that's what i always thought of about stereolab was math
0: yeah and i think like especially when i was in like the worst of it like i was listening to stereolab all the time like largely for that reason because like it was it didn't (laughs) there wasn't it didn't ask anything of me emotionally Mm -hmm. um and i think that's what i was drawing to i think there's a lot of people i mean certainly lots of people like listen to like very sad stuff when they're sad and like i don't do that like, no. if, the, the the more miserable I am, the, the more I just stay away from anything that's particularly maudlin.
1: Yeah, yeah. It's like, I think sometimes people use pop music, like, and sad pop music to wring out the tears that are waiting to come out. Yeah. But sometimes music serves a different purpose, which is to sort of just flatten out everything. Yeah, zone out, you know. Make you feel a little less. Maybe your problem is you're feeling too much. yeah. I think there's definitely things that
0: like I, like I would be attracted to and a thing like in a time like that, like I think I, I listened to a lot of like Godspeed, you black emperor in a phase like that too. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of like a similar thing, but more overtly like a feeling of like encroaching dread in that music. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: <clears throat> oh God. Have we forgotten anything else about Steely Dan? Is there anything else? Hmm, I'm trying to think of like the, what, what you were kind of outlining before. Um, We've covered so much, Matthew. Yes, we
0: we really, uh, is there, is there a way we can kind of do something that kind of put a button at the end?
1: Yeah, I think so. Um, if you were trying, so Matthew, if you were trying to get somebody to understand why you like Steely Dan, is there a song that you would recommend that they try and listen to?
0: I would probably just direct them to Peg. I feel like that, because <laughs> Peg I, is, is, is like such an easy song to like. And, yeah. But it's also kind of like so much of their aesthetic is kind of like in that one song. Like all the things mm-hmm. that make Steely Dan Steely Dan are somewhere in Peg. So if you, you know, develop an attachment to peg. If you become fascinated by peg, it's very easy to kind of transition into other parts of the catalog. Whereas, mm-hmm. you know, it's directing people to the more early stuff, that's more rock. Like, you know, like reeling in the years, a lot of people would just really like that one too. That's a very popular song. It's very easy to like that song out of context, but I don't think that song has that same thing where you know if you like that song you'll probably like the rest of the catalog but i feel like pegs is a really good entry point to that band or like you know or or maybe like by the same token like a song like kid charlemagne yeah they're just really accessible songs
1: that also just kind of like really give you the premise of the band can we say one more thing like what do you think about how Steely Dan gets lumped in with Yacht rock? I am not crazy about the yacht rock thing i don't- I've never really liked like those
0: old sketches. I don't like the way those guys like kind of try to like retrofit define a genre that didn't quite exist like I think there's a thing that happens in time but like they try to like make it a genre and like there's kind- they're they're sort of tongue in cheek about it sort of not I don't know those guys just really kind of rub me the wrong way personally um so i don't know i i i I've, but i think i mean okay, so on thing, one I, hand i feel like they did a lot to get people to pay attention to that stuff to like listen to it but i feel like it's 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 so glib i think they're they kind of like perpetuated the thing where you know oh this is this is you know this is not cool you know not want to take this seriously even if it's so smooth
1: and well made you know it's like there, there's a certain condescension to it that i don't like but then there's this sort of the the uh, irony upon ironies of Steely Dan, the irony band, being appreciated ironically. Yeah, that's that's <laughs> true. But I don't, I feel like <sighs> condescending to was, those guys. It's like it's just, it's it's just, it's a no win situation. Yeah, this like you just end up looking kind of foolish. To me, it was kind of a means to an end. If it's like if yacht rock is the thing that makes people start to appreciate steely dan and not be sort of prejudiced against them for dumb reasons that aren't even their own ideas great yeah yeah that's fair but yeah yeah there's like i don't know it's like that kind of smug attitude towards it really
0: puts me off and i think probably was like literally putting me off from listening to the music so i don't know if that whole scenario even worked on me specifically um Though, you know, it's like, I think, you know, if anything, it kind of shines a light on, like, a bunch of stuff I grew up listening to. They're like, oh, yeah, I like all of that stuff. You know, I really love What a Fool Believes. I really love, um, you know, all, you know, this, that that general kind of, like, uh, really immaculate light FM. That's kind of, like, what I grew up listening to. Me too.
1: That was the whole backseat of the car when I was a kid.
0: Right. It's it's all the stuff I grew up listening to on car radios and in stores and stuff. So, mm-hmm. you know,
1: like In I the supermarket.
0: I, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Like that's all the stuff I, I recently did like this set of seventies uh, soft rock kind of breaking into like three parts of the decade. And mm-hmm. the whole thing of it is like this is this is all of the music I grew up listening to, uh not intentionally. But it's all, you know, for the most part stuff that I
1: really like a lot. <laughs> You, before I let you go, have you seen or read or heard anything lately that you really liked that you can tell our listeners about? Um,
0: well, with music, there's there's this scene that's kind of developing in England that, I, that doesn't really have a name yet, but it's a lot of like young bands doing this kind of like sort of post punk thing, but it's not always kind of post punk. But it's kind of really characterized by people doing this kind of speak singing thing. Mm-hmm. and yeah I, I've become very fascinated by that in the very recent past um yeah so that, that that's kind of my, my 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 most recent fascination um I haven't really seen a lot of movies lately I wish I could I wish I could throw one at you um like I, I think like of all the things uh that really kind of went by the wayside with me in the pandemic is like I, all of my movie consumption kind of like fell off. Um I, I mean the, the last movie I really watched with any great attention is I, I rewatched Barry Linden for the first time in like twenty years. And the I, I loved it. I really loved oh, seeing yeah. Barry Linden again. I liked it so much more than it when I was like twenty years old. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it's not a movie for a twenty year old. One of the reasons I started this podcast was to force myself to watch movies again because I fell right out of it during the pandemic. Yeah, I don't even really watch a lot of TV shows either. Like I recently
0: like watched like, the, like one of the few examples of me watching a TV show like in that kind of like binge mode, which I, I is not really like a, a thing I do a lot. Was uh, a friend of mine uh, recommended the show The Expanse. And I just mm-hmm. became like kind of obsessed with The Expanse. Like it has like is one of those things that has like a really like dense mythology. It, it's kind of the best way I could probably put it. Um, both by pedigree and kind of scope is it's kind of like a hard sci-fi equivalent to game of thrones. Mm. Um, you know, the, the, and the, they're kind of like proteges of George R. R. Martin, like the guys who, who wrote, who wrote those books. And then also, uh, the really guiding people behind the tv show and i think a lot of ways it's kind of like them trying to avoid the, the pitfalls the game of thrones got into uh yeah. well first of all being like you know they are absolutely finishing the book series the the final book will be out later this year <laughs> um and then also like they because they they're so heavily involved in the writing of it, like it's it doesn't really go off the rails the way Game of Thrones does, even though I, I mean, I don't really hate the end of Game of Thrones the way a lot of people do. But I also don't love Game of Thrones the way a lot of people do. So there, there's I'm not the kind of person who could feel betrayed by it. No, but yeah. Yeah, th- I guess those are probably off the top of my head. Those those are two recent fascinations for me. Matthew, where can people find you on Twitter? I'm at Perpetua, which is my, my last name. I, I got in on that very early, and uh, people can find uh, you know most of my writing at, at fluxblog.org, and uh, you know the in, in either case they can find the podcast the called Flux Pod, and that's on all of the major uh, podcast platforms. How long have you been doing FlexPod? That's a relatively recent project for me. I started recording episodes in October, and I think they, I think they started coming out like mid-November. I waited till like after the election stuff was kind of sorted. It was you know you just like hey it's it's the election week. Who wants a new
1: music podcast? You know,
0: it's bad I guess timing. We
1: started at the same time actually. But yeah, I recorded my first episode during the last moments of the election, but there was no way I was unleashing it until after. The aftermath.
0: Yeah, uh, my, my my podcast kind of runs on that kind of uh, p- kind of standard Patreon podcast model, where the regular episodes come out on Wednesdays, and then there's Patreon episodes that come out on Saturdays.
1: I'll put links in the show description. Thank you so much. Thank Matt, you for having me. This is, is a real thrill. Oh, I'm so glad to actually speak to a music guy about Steely Dan, and you know, and and I'm always happy to meet somebody else who won't judge me for my my passion for the band. <laughs> well, we are, we are both very Dan Pilled men. <laughs> I know. And I hope that we Dan pill a few more people. And I also hope that this show does right by Steely Dan Twitter. People got very happy when I started floating the idea of doing this. And I really appreciate the feedback that I got on Twitter from some of the Dan Pilled people. Um, and I really want you guys to approve of this episode. If anyone
0: finds themselves Dan Pilled as uh, direct or indirect result of listening to this it might happen later on it may take time for the pill to you know fully dissolve and enter your system please tell us i really i would really like to know Uh, i'm always very interested in if people actually you know get into something because of something like this i think there's a good
1: chance of it i think i think we made a really good case for steely dan yeah, I think so, too. Uh, a friend of mine said that, well, I don't think about Steely Dan at all. That's the answer to your question, what do you think of Steely Dan? And I was like, you'll get there. You'll get yeah, there. Yeah, or I don't know, maybe just listen wasn't anything else. It's, it's, there's no real pressure on it, you know? <laughs> Someday in your late 30s or your early 40s, you'll be in the backseat of a car. A Deacon <laughs> Balloon will come on. And suddenly you'll understand.
0: <laughs> yeah, you, you'll want to work the saxophone. You want to like... Uh, move through the suburban streets, making love to these women. You know, you'll be living the dream. You'll be Dan Pilled. You'll be drinking scotch whiskey all night long and die behind the wheel, like all of us.
1: They call Alabama the Crimson Tide. What will they call you? Mm. You'll have to find out. Matthew Perpetua, thank you so much for joining me. Oh, Thank you so much, Jesse. This is really exciting. That's the end of this episode, but we'll have another junk filter in the next few days. If you're enjoying the podcast, please like and subscribe to it. Please tell your friends. And if you're really enjoying the podcast, please consider becoming a patron. We have three bonus episodes there now. We're recording another one next week. And the link to our Patreon is at our Twitter account, which is Junk Filter Pod. The original music for this program was provided by Marker Starling. My name is Jesse Hawken. Thank you for listening.